All right, good morning. As Keith said, today we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Genesis. It's the very first book in our Bibles. And throughout this series, we're going to be asking ourselves uh, what God wants to teach us through these ancient stories, not just about the past, but also about the present. The tagline for this series is Finding the Present in the Beginning. And today, we're starting our series at the very beginning of the beginning with the creation itself. Now, as I planned for this series, I must confess to all of you that this was the one that intimidated me the most, this very first message, because you really can't talk about Genesis 1 in this day and age uh, without addressing the question that comes to everybody's minds as we talk about Genesis 1, which is, what about evolution? Okay, uh, Evolution, of course, is the uh, current scientific consensus that the universe is very old, billions of years old, and that the variety of Earth's life forms have all descended over several billion years from a common ancestor. Uh, now, when you talk to a group of Christians, uh, there's usually some who want you to say that you cannot be a good Christian and believe in evolution. And there are others who want you to say that you can be a good Christian and believe in evolution. And so this is one of those issues that you really can't talk about without somebody getting upset. Uh, and yet, I think it's very important for us to talk about. The question that we're faced with, to condense it, is essentially, do we have to choose between God and evolution? And the reason this, this question is important, the reason I don't just start reading the passage and just kind of talk about what it says, um, is because we have to think very carefully about how we respond to this question. Because how we respond has significant effects. Uh, the claim that we have to choose between God and evolution is something that has been a factor in many people walking away from the Christian faith. Some people are told from a young age that they must choose one or the other, and they think, well, I'm resolved that, you know, I choose God over evolution, and then they go off to school and they hear some things that sound very compelling, that evolution is true, and then they feel torn, and some people end up walking away from faith in part because of this, this conflict that they deal with. Um, some people didn't grow up in a Christian home, but they have this perception that if you become a Christian, you have to reject evolutionary theory. And so then that makes them hesitant to take Christianity seriously. Uh, also, uh, how we respond to this question uh, affects how we as Christians tend to view science. Um, uh, some Christians are extremely uh, suspicious or even resentful of science and scientists. Uh, because of how they respond to this question. So we need to be very, very careful how we answer this, because uh, we don't want to create any unnecessary barriers to faith in Christ. Uh, you might remember back when we did the Untamed Jesus series, uh, we talked about the time when Jesus flipped the tables in the, in the temple. Remember that? And maybe you remember that one of the conclusions of that message was this, Jesus hates when unnecessary obstacles make it difficult for people to come to God. 
uh, in the temple. The money changers were getting in the way of people worshiping God. They were creating an unnecessary obstacle. And Jesus' response was to flip those tables, flip that unnecessary obstacle. And so given that this particular issue creates an obstacle for many people to coming to God, uh, we really need to ask ourselves, is this a necessary obstacle? Or is it a table that needs to be flipped? Just let's forget about it. If it's not a necessary obstacle, then we better flip that table as soon as possible. On the other hand, if it is a necessary obstacle, we better not get rid of it just for convenience's sake. Right? If accepting evolution means dishonoring the scriptures, then we have to tell people that they can't really have both evolutionary theory and God. Uh, we have to call people to make a choice. So, what is the answer? Is it necessary to force people to choose between evolutionary theory and the God of Genesis? Well, I'm going to give you my answer to that question later. <laughs> You're going to have to wait a little while. But I think it's important, before I try to answer that, for us to get into the text. Uh, so, we're going to do that. Uh, before, before we do, let's all bow our heads and pray. Lord, we thank you for this chance to look at your word together. And God, I pray that you would help us to come to it in humility I pray, Lord, that you would help all of us to assume the best about each other, uh, even if we disagree on how we interpret this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that you give us wisdom to interpret your word well and to apply it to our lives well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. All right. I love those verses. I just, you know, you read them and you're like, I'm not entirely sure what that means, but it sounds cool. Uh, now, I want to stop here, and I, I want to make a point that might seem insignificant, but it's actually very significant, which is, I think that we need to think of that very first verse like a newspaper headline. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we need to think of the second verse like the first sentence in that newspaper story. Now, the earth was formless and empty. And here's why I say that. Because in chapter 2 of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 1, which is kind of the conclusion of this section, here's what it says. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So, chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, are like bookends. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then 2, 1 is the second bookend. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And what that construction tells you is that everything in between there, uh, 1-2 through 131, is the story of God creating the heavens and the earth. Okay? Now, why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, here's why it's important. Because if verse 1 
is like a newspaper headline, then the first line of the story is really verse 2. And remember what verse 2 starts by saying, now the earth was formless and empty. And what I want us to see is that if that verse is the first line in the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth, Genesis is saying that the earth existed before it was created. Wait a second. What? The earth existed before it was created. Because verse 1 says essentially, let me tell you about the creation of the earth. Verse 2 says, now the earth was formless and empty. It's kind of like if a friend said to you, let me tell you about how I created pizza, and then said, now pizza was tasteless and boring, but then I set to work. See what I mean? Now you might say, well, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that something could exist before it was created. Well, that all depends on how we understand this word create that we use. Create. What does create really mean? What did it mean to the mind of a Hebrew person that would have first been reading this account? Well, I want to suggest that the way that Genesis talks about creation is not necessarily what most of us think about when we think about creation. We tend to think about creation as God poofing something into existence, right? There's nothing, and then God goes, poof, and there it is. But Genesis 1 seems to be saying, uh, it, it seems to be thinking of creation primarily as God bringing order and purpose and goodness to material that already exists. I'm going to say that again. Genesis 1 thinks of creation primarily as God bringing order and purpose and goodness to material that already exists. Uh, at the start of the creation story, the earth exists in some sense, but it hasn't really been created yet. It hasn't come alive. Now, I don't mean to suggest here that God didn't also create the material that he then orders and shapes and gives purpose to. Uh, I do believe in what's called creation out of nothing. Uh, everything ultimately comes from God. But what I'm saying is that Genesis doesn't tell us that story. Okay? The Genesis 1 creation story, it doesn't tell us where that raw material came from. Um, the creation story in Genesis tells us about how, how God orders, shapes, and gives purpose to material that already exists. And it understands God's process of doing that as creation. Okay? Now, that might not seem like a real important point. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I do think it's an important thing to keep in mind, especially as we wrestle with that question of, of do we have to choose between uh, the God of Genesis and the scientific consensus of today. Now, let's look again at verse 2, that awesome, mysterious verse. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, I think we could spend a whole sermon just on that verse. But we can't. Um, so, I'll give you the quick, quick version of this. What this verse is saying is that God created, similar to the way that a mother bird sits on her nest and nurtures the eggs to life. Uh, 
that word there for hovering has that connotation of a, of a, a mother bird brooding over a nest. So what this is saying is that God hovered over this raw, chaotic material, the waters, and then nurtured that, ordered that into life and form and beauty, um, the creation. And what follows next in the text of the creation account is a description of what happened as God did that, what happened as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And most of us know that what happened is, is described in terms of six days, right? Now, the passage itself is kind of a long one, so I'm not going to read the whole thing word for word, uh, but I encourage you guys to read it yourselves on your own this week and reflect on it. Um, but here's, here's how it breaks down. Uh, day one, God creates day and night. Day two, God creates the sky and the sea. Day three, God creates dry land. Day four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, God creates ocean creatures and birds. Day six, God creates land creatures, which culminates in the creation of human beings. Now, here's what I want us to notice, because this is easy for us to miss. There is a poetic structure to these six days. Now, remember, verse 2 said, first line in the story, the earth was formless and empty. The text is presenting this as a problem. The earth is formless and empty. And what, what happens with the six days of creation is that the first three days describe God uh, solving the problem of formlessness. And then the second three days describe God filling the formlessness. And if you take days one through three and days four through six and you line them up, there's a parallel structure there. So on the first day, uh, God creates the form of day and night. And then on the parallel day, day four, he fills the, the form with the sun, the moon, and the stars, which govern the day and the night. Okay? Day two, he creates the sky and the sea, the form of the sky and the sea. And then on the parallel day, day five, he creates the birds and ocean creatures, which fill that form of the sea. And then on day three, the dry land is the form that God creates, and then he fills the emptiness with, on day six, the parallel day, with land creatures and eventually human beings. Now, here's why this is significant. This sort of parallelism is a characteristic of Hebrew poetry. And that's important because whenever we're reading a passage in the Bible, we have to ask ourselves, what genre of literature is this that I'm reading? Because that's going to affect how you understand it. And in the case of Genesis 1, there is a lot of evidence that the genre is poetry. So, first of all, there's this parallelism that exists between the six days, form and then filling the form. Um, but in addition to that evidence, there's a whole bunch of other stuff, primarily uh, around the number seven. Sevens are everywhere in Genesis 1. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, for one thing, the first sentence has seven Hebrew words. We miss that, you know, because it's a translation. But in the Hebrew, there's seven, seven words. Uh, the second sentence has 14 Hebrew words, seven times two. Uh, the word for earth appears 21 times, 7 times 3. 
Same thing with uh, the word for heaven. appears 21 times. Seven times three. Uh, the word for God is mentioned 35 times. Seven times five. And it was so, that phrase, occurs seven times. And the phrase, God saw it was good, occurs seven times. Now, all of that, it could just be coincidence. But I take it as evidence, uh, that, and I think we should take it as evidence, that Genesis 1 has poetic structure. It is the genre of poetry. And so, the point of Genesis 1 is not to give a scientific account of how the world came to be. It's not, the point of Genesis 1 is not to describe exactly how long it took God to create or exactly how it happened. The point, this is how I would say it, how I would put it, the point of Genesis 1 is to poetically express the reality <clears throat> that God is the creator and he is responsible for the magnificent order and purpose in creation. God is the reason the earth is not formless and empty. So, if Genesis 1 is poetic, and if the real point of the account is what I just said, we need to be very, very careful about insisting that people take Genesis 1 literally. You know, if you insist on someone believing poetry literally, you're not really doing respect to poetry, right? Because that's not how poetry is meant to be understood. Uh, so we should be cautious. We shouldn't treat Genesis 1 like a scientific textbook, because uh, that's just not the genre that it is. All right, so I have tried to lay some, some groundwork here. Uh, we've established that, one, Genesis 1 thinks of creation a little differently than we normally do. It thinks of creation primarily as ordering, shaping, and giving purpose to material that already exists. And then, uh, two, Genesis 1 is poetic. So, with those points in mind, I think you can imagine where I'm heading when it comes to the question that I initially opened uh, the sermon with. This question of, must we choose between evolution or the God of Genesis? And I said I would give you my answer, so here is my answer. No, I don't think we do. Now, some of you are probably happy to hear me say that. Others of you may be disappointed to hear me say that. Now, regardless of your, of your response, let me begin by clarifying something. I am not saying that evolutionary theory is correct. That's not what this sermon is about. You might remember back last November, I did a sermon on the election, and I started by saying, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. And this is similar, okay? I, I am not preaching that you should accept evolutionary theory. Um, I, I'm not a scientist. I don't really study that stuff. You know, I, I don't know, okay? Um, all I am saying is that I believe it is possible uh, for someone to be a committed follower of Christ, to hold scripture in high regard, and at the same time, to think that the scientific consensus on evolution is probably correct. That's it. That's what I'm saying. Now, for any of you here who may feel disappointed that I would say that, 
uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my personal history uh, surrounding this issue, because I think that might be helpful. When I was in high school, and for a period of time after high school as well, I saw the theory of evolution and God as utterly and completely incompatible. And I thought that people who taught evolution were, whether they realized it or not, participating in a demonic conspiracy to explain away God. That would not be exaggeration at all. Um, I remember arguing with my high school biology teacher about it, and God bless him, he was always very kind and gracious to me, because I was a bull about it. Like, I was pushy. Um, because I was just so confident that evolution was a lie, that it was an evil lie, and that the, the church had to fight against it. And to be honest, for a time, I saw belief in evolution as one of the most important indicators of whether or not somebody was actually a Christian. I saw it as one of the things that really defined whether someone was one of us or one of them. And I remember when I was in 10th grade, I don't remember exactly why this happened, but I was asked by the leader of an adult Sunday school class to come in and share, as somebody who goes to public school, um, what, what I learned in science cl class about human origins. I was basically just called to come and share about that. But I, I decided to take it a little further than that. I didn't just come and share. I came and acted like I was teaching a class. And I came up with um, handouts for everybody to have. And I like spoke, as I am to you right now, like this, for 40 minutes to this adult Sunday school class telling them why evolution and the Bible are irreconcilable. And at the end of the class, one of the adult attendees uh, shared that she thought that it was possible for someone to see God as creator and also to believe in evolution. And I remember that when she said that, I thought, oh, she's one of them. And I assumed that whoever this woman was, she was, at best, woefully uninformed about Scripture, and at worst, refusing to take the Bible seriously. Now, today, I reflect on that morning, and I feel some embarrassment, mainly because I was in 10th grade. You know, <laughs> what made me think that I could come and tell all these adults what was right about this. You know, I, I, I hadn't taken any serious science courses. I never studied Hebrew. I had never taken any classes on, like, how to do good Bible interpretation. I didn't, I didn't know any of that. And on top of all that, I just lacked basic life experience. And yet, I went in there, and I really believed that I had it figured out, and that it was my job to educate these people, and that I was fighting God's battle against Satan's deception. And yet, here I am today saying something that's awfully similar to what that woman said, which is just essentially, I think it's possible to be a committed Christian, to believe in God as creator, and still believe in evolution. So, what the heck happened to me? <laughs> All right. How did my opinion change on that? Well, to be honest, it was a slow process. 
Uh, it was a slow process of learning about the complexities of biblical interpretation, learning about the nuances of language, uh, learning about the history of the church's thinking about this particular issue and the variety of opinions that actually exist in the church as a whole. Uh, it involved spending time with people of deep faith who thought differently from me about this. Now, the two points that I made earlier about Genesis uh, are part of the reason that my opinion changed as well. But another reason is because I came to realize that natural explanations don't remove the need for God. Uh, just because we have a natural explanation for something doesn't mean that God isn't involved. Uh, in fact, chances are, if we are Christians, every day things happen and we attribute their cause both to God and to something other than God, something natural. For example, tomorrow morning when you wake up, I think most of us would legitimately be able to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Right? But we could also say, this day exists because the sun rose, and the sun rose because the earth is rotating on, it, on its axis, and then it's, it's also orbiting around the sun, which it's doing because the, the sun exerts gravitational pull on the earth. But that, both those things are true, right? Those explanations are not in conflict with each other. They're just different ways of describing what's going on. Um, so, just because something can be described or, in a sense, explained in natural terms does not mean that God is not also the cause of what is happening. And I say that for two reasons. One, because God is the one who created the natural order in the first place. And two, because God is actively involved in the world that he has created, sustaining it moment by moment. So, will tomorrow morning exist because the Lord made it? Absolutely. And will tomorrow morning exist because the sun came up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, both those things. Whatever happens in this world, there are always multiple true ways of answering the question, what caused this? For example, if you make pancakes, and someone looks at the pancakes you've made and says, what caused these? There are multiple true answers to that question. So one answer you could give is that, well, when you put uh, flour and eggs and sugar in a pan and you heat them up, this is what happens. Okay, right, that's, that's a true explanation. But you could also say, uh, well, what caused these pancakes? Well, I woke up this morning, I was really hungry, I wanted to eat some pancakes, so I made some. Both explanations are true, right? And they're not in conflict with each other. Now, let's imagine that instead of talking about pancakes, we're talking about the universe. What caused this? What caused this universe? Well, like with the pancakes, there's multiple true ways of answering that question. Um, a scientist might answer that question by talking about the Big Bang. And he or she may or may not be correct about that explanation, but if they are, it doesn't mean that that's the whole explanation, right? Um, it, doesn't also, it doesn't mean that the universe wasn't also created by God 
because God really wanted to create it. Right? And so we don't have to feel threatened by scientific answers because the scientific answer can never ever be the whole answer to the cause of something. Um, scientific answers are like that first explanation of how pancakes got there because when flour, eggs, and sugar are put in a pan and heated up, they become pancakes. Um, but we don't have a complete answer to the question of pancake existence and so, until we've talked about somebody wanting pancakes and taking the initiative to make it. right? Um, and in the same way, we don't have a whole answer to the question, to the answer of our existence and the existence of this world until we've talked about how somebody wanted to make it, make it and took the initiative to do that. So science can't give the whole answer. It only gives a particular kind of answer. And God is still just as necessary whether we have a scientific explanation or not. And in the same way, if evolution is true, and again, I'm saying if, I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying if, if it is true, if the scientific consensus on human origins is correct, it doesn't mean that God didn't knit us together. It doesn't mean that God isn't still creator. You know, the psalmist says that God knit us together in our mother's wombs. And most of us intuitively know, well, that doesn't mean that embryology is false, right? embryology that says that, you know, the sperm and the egg come together and they form the zygote and then that becomes a blastula or however you say that. Like, we don't say, oh, no, 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 none of that's true because God knit us together with his golden knitting needles, right? <laughs> we recognize, no, just because there is a natural way of explaining what is going on does not mean that at the same time God is not involved. God isn't holding it all together. God isn't the author of the natural order in the first place. So, whether you think that evolution is a verifiable scientific fact or an absurd lie or something in the middle, whatever you think, please don't feel threatened by it. Don't feel like it is something that needs to be, um, uh, puts you into fight or flight response. Because God is still necessary whether it's true or not. And given the poetic nature of Genesis 1, our beliefs about evolution do not need to divide us. This does not need to be something that churches split over. It does not need to be something that breaks our fellowship. Okay, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. But regardless, I want to close today on common ground. <laughs> so I want to close with three things that Genesis 1 definitely teaches. I don't care how literally you, or literarily, you take Genesis 1. These are three things that I am, I am confident we can all agree on. These are three things that I'm absolutely certain that the original author of Genesis wanted us to hear. These are the things that I'm positive that God wants us to know. Okay, we're going to go through these quickly. So, number one. The world is the result of God's purpose and design. Whether you believe in evolution or literal six-day creation uh, or something in between, it is so important to recognize that this world is God's handiwork. Uh, ultimately, all this exists because it was God's idea. 
Uh, God is the ultimate reason for the order and complexity and beauty of creation. He is the, war, the one who takes formlessness and emptiness and he fills it with form and, and, and he fills the emptiness, right? He is the one who does that. Uh, this magnificent, beautiful creation exists because of his intention, his purpose, his design. Number two, God created because he wanted to and he loves his creation. You know, one of the things that separates the Genesis creation story from other ancient Near Eastern creation stories is that in Genesis, God creates just because he wants to, not because he's forced to, not because he has to, uh, but because he wants to. Uh, God doesn't, you know, create out of some necessity. God doesn't create because he just killed another God and then he has to do something with the corpse. That's something that is in at least one other creation narrative, that the, the creator killed some other god, and then he cut the god up into pieces, and that became the creation. That's, that's not the story that Genesis tells. Um, Genesis, unlike at least one other creation story, uh, doesn't say that God created because um, he wanted to create a race of people that could serve the gods and make life easier for the gods. That was another theme in a, in a creation narrative of that time. The Genesis creation narrative has God as creating because he wants to, and what he creates, he loves. Now remember how it says seven times throughout Genesis 1, God looked at what he created and he saw that it was good. It was good. So God looks at his creation and he loves it. He loves the sun and the moon and the stars. He loves the sky and the sea, and he loves us. And I think this is so important to recognize because... Sometimes the church has lost sight of this. And when I say the church, I'm not talking specifically about this church, but I'm just talking about the church uh, throughout history, because the church has had a tendency to say physical things, bad. Spiritual things, good. Right? But that's not the, the, the worldview that we're presented with in, in Genesis. Genesis says physical things are good. God created the world, and he said, it is good. So as Christians, we should not be people who think that the physical world is somehow grosser or evil. You know, we should love the world, and we should care for the world. I think Christians should be some of the most uh, environmentally um, uh, motivated people, you know, to care for the environment uh, than, than anybody else, because we know that God created the environment, and he loves it, you know, and he's given us responsibility to care for it. And then finally, number three, human beings have a special place in God's creation. Human beings have a special place in God's creation. Verses 26 through 27 say, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So no other creature is made in God's image. You might ask, okay, well, what does that mean to be made in God's image? Well, I think the text tells us, right? Let us make man in our image and our likeness, and what? Let them rule, right? 
God is the supreme ruler, right? That's what God does. He rules. So to be made in God, God's image is to have power to rule. And um, you see that we have this power as human beings. We have this incredible authority in the world to curse or bless our surroundings. Um, this may sound prideful, but I would say that the Genesis creation story describes us as the kings and queens of creation. Uh, God has set up this incredible, beautiful world. Uh, he, has, he has made the form and filled it, and he has said, I'm putting you second in command over all of this. Ultimately, yes, I am the, the ruler, but I'm, I'm giving you guys authority over all of this. And because of that, no other creature on earth has greater power to either help or hurt the rest of creation than we do. Uh, because that's what rulers do, right? Rulers aren't necessarily good or bad, but rulers have power. And we have power. And that means that if we abuse our power, we can cause a lot of damage in the world. And we can also do a lot of good. You know, one of the, the big issues that we hear about a lot today is uh, climate change, global warming. I figure I'm hitting all the controversial issues. Might as well, might as well just keep going, right? Um, and the claim that scientists make is that human beings, through industrialization, uh, have altered the environment enough that it's having significant impact on climate. Now, I'm not going to tell you this morning, you know, what to think about that, okay? But what I want us to see is that there's no reason for us to think from a biblical perspective that human beings would not be capable of affecting the climate, right? Because we're the kings and queens of creation. You know, we have incredible power to bless or to harm. That's the way God set things up. So we're special. We're not like any other creature. Uh, we share things in common with other creatures, but we are different in fundamental ways. And with that uh, difference comes great responsibility. All right, so those are the three things that I think we can absolutely take away from this story, regardless of how literal uh, we think it must be interpreted. And what I want us to notice is that all three of these things have to do with worldview. So all of us have a way that we view the world. Uh, regardless of what religion we are, what our background is, it's often it's unconscious, but we have certain assumptions that we make about the nature of the world, and that shapes our worldview. And our worldview, in turn, often unconsciously, shapes everything that we do and say. And Genesis 1 is so important because it says, these are the truths that should shape your worldview. Okay, these are the truths that should be buried deep within your soul and your brain, and that should guide the things that you do and say. So my prayer this morning is that these would seep deep into our brains. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would help us to recognize and believe and live in light of the fact that this world is your creation, uh, that it is um, the result of your purpose and your intention and your design, that you love it, 
that you care for it, and that you have appointed us, in a sense, second in command over this marvelous world. God, I pray that we would be able to step outside every day and recognize this creation as your handiwork, and that that would shape the way that we live our lives. And I pray that if we have disagreements about how to understand Genesis 1, that we would give grace to each other as we discuss it with one another. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide every discussion we have. In Jesus' name, amen.